Without DNA, Bradley Edwards, triple murderer, would still be free today. When a tidy amount is splashed in the lab or moved by somebody's gloves or on their sleeve, that it can cross-contaminate. Some police who wanted to take shortcuts were able to work out that it was easier to do with DNA than with gelignite, and much easier than giving away perfectly good Colt 45s. I'm Andrew Rule, and this is Life and Crimes. Today, we're going to talk about DNA as a tool for catching crooks. And when it comes to catching crooks, DNA matching is probably the greatest breakthrough since Charles Darwin's cousin, a guy called Sir Francis Galton, advocated fingerprinting in the 1890s. Even then, fingerprinting wasn't new, exactly, because ancient civilizations had used something similar thousands of years before. But fingerprinting did not become a tool for the modern crime investigator until the early decade of the 20th century, when Sir Francis Galton's principles that each fingerprint is unique started to seep through into the law courts in the United Kingdom and in the United States and eventually in Australia. A century later, DNA is every bit as revolutionary as fingerprints were then. But I'm here to say that as good as DNA is, it does have some drawbacks and we'll go into those today. One of the biggest changes in my time in writing about crime in the last 30 plus years is the rise in DNA analysis as well as some other techniques used by modern police to catch modern crooks. The big three these days in the 21st century are DNA and the rich trove of data created every minute by those constant electronic witnesses, the security camera and the mobile telephone. When modern investigators reach for any or all of these techniques, there is hardly anywhere for the bad guys to hide. That is, unless they are completely off the grid, like some fugitive mafia bosses out in rural Italy, or like the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski in the United States, you know, 25 years ago, or indeed like Socko and Son, the fugitive crook and his son who ran around the back roads of Australia for several years committing crimes until they made the mistake of shooting at a policeman. And then their days were numbered. Before that, they had roamed the back roads and properties of rural Australia and stayed off the grid. They'd stayed away from security cameras, they'd stayed away from using credit cards, and they'd stayed away from using mobile telephones. And that way, they stayed out of sight. But in the real world, very few of us can actually live like that for long. Before we start to bag DNA and uh, point out where it goes wrong or can go wrong or can be abused, Let's point out how good it can be, because when it's good, it's very, very good. And when it's bad, it's horrid. An outstanding recent example of investigators using 
the full range of modern techniques was the swift arrest of Adrian Bailey, the rapist who killed Jill Maher in Brunswick in 2013. This is the crime that riveted Victoria and to some extent all Australians. It's highly likely that had it happened 20 years earlier, Adrian Bailey would probably not have been caught because he was caught by judicious and prompt work by savvy police who pulled together all the tools in their toolkit to find the unknown attacker. What they did in 2013 that would not have been possible probably even in the 1990s was to go to all the close-by shops in Sydney Road where Jill Maher was last seen walking. And they were able to get lots of footage from relevant shops, security camera footage, that exists these days because security cameras are cheap and they are ubiquitous, whereas once upon a time they were expensive and not many shops had them. The police were able to grab these. They were probably able to get footage also from street security cameras and from dash cams. And between all these, they were able to determine that a man had accosted Jill Ma in the minutes before she disappeared. But there's more. Once they'd been able to do this, they were then able to use mobile phones and mobile phone records and to work out which vehicles had gone out of Melbourne on particular roads and be able to use all this data and refine it down and boil it down to point the finger at a particular suspect. Once the police had an idea that Bailey could be a suspect, they were able to use all those tools to build a case against him. And so what we had ultimately was mobile phone data and the fact that mobile phones ping off towers as you progress along a certain route. You had mobile phone records as well, showing a pattern of phone calls, which can be relevant in some cases. We also had the security footage, camera footage we've already referred to, and then ultimately we had the DNA evidence, which would be fairly easily gathered from a rape victim and murder victim, which Jill Maher was. And that would link, in a very final way, Adrian Bailey to one of the most terrible crimes of the last decade. The important thing to note about the Maher case, or the Bailey case, is that he was not convicted alone on DNA evidence. Although, in this case, it would have been compelling, what the police also had was brilliant circumstantial evidence that Bailey was the only feasible candidate as the perpetrator. Okay, let's talk about DNA. It's easy for any of us to see how camera footage or certain mobile telephone records can pin an accused to a particular crime. There's the footage, there's a picture of Bill Smith. Here's Bill Smith's mobile telephone movements. Here's the calls he made from certain spots at certain times. You can build a picture of where a person was 
and what they were doing in such a way that any of us can tell it's probably right, unless it's been massively doctored by the CIA or something, it will be right. And it's not hard for members of a jury to make that decision. What is trickier is DNA evidence, because in the end, we lay people out in the world, the members of the the jury of public opinion, we have to rely on what we're told by scientists we've never seen and never met who assure us that DNA evidence is enormously accurate. And of course, they're right. DNA evidence is enormously accurate. The big problem is this. Is it the right DNA evidence? How did it get there? What if the cigarette butt or the coffee cup or the soft drink bottle that I put down in one suburb um, on a Monday is picked up by someone, either accidentally or deliberately, and taken and put at a crime scene on Tuesday. My DNA is then found at the crime scene. That would be outstanding evidence if they were building a case against me. And yet, in the end, all it shows is that my DNA was on a cigarette butt or a coffee cup or a drink bottle, or some other object that doesn't actually prove I committed a crime. It just proves that my DNA was placed on a very easily transportable item. That's all it proves. And this is where juries, and where all of us, have to be very careful about DNA, because without supporting evidence, the existence of a DNA sample at a particular site, may not prove anything in particular. It may actually suggest that someone is trying to frame up someone else. And that, sadly, has happened more than once. The truth is that we, the public, have to trust an enormous conga line of police, crime scene specialists, laboratory technicians and anyone else who might have the motive or the means to deposit a DNA sample at a crime scene, if not deliberately, then accidentally. And if not at a crime scene, in a forensic laboratory. It is a long and potentially vulnerable chain of participants. Most times, DNA works really well. Not only it convicts the right people, but it can be used to clear those who were wrongly convicted in less enlightened times. But, and there's always the but, there's a huge potential for a miscarriage of justice when DNA is the sole basis of a prosecution case without strong corroborating evidence. Before we go through examples of when DNA gets it wrong, Let's look at when DNA gets it right, because it is a very powerful and wonderful tool for crime fighting. On balance, it does more good than harm. Anyone defending DNA matching as a crime fighting tool could hardly do better than to look at the solving of the Claremont murders in Perth a full 20 years after they were actually committed 
in the 1990s. The eventual arrest of the killer, a bloke called Bradley Edwards, in 2016, was based entirely on cross-matching a DNA sample that an unknown male had left when abducting and raping a 17-year-old girl at Perth's Karakatta Cemetery back in 1995. As that much-respected homicide investigator, Ron Idles, always says, the answer to a homicide case is nearly always in the file. And what he means by that is that mostly the best suspects have probably been interviewed or at least named or at least referred to somewhere. They're probably on the list that police have when they start investigating. In the Claremont case, they didn't have the name of the right suspect early doors, but they had the material that would provide the key to solving these murders so many years after they were committed. In this case, in the Claremont case, the breakthrough came when detectives on the task force checked their own evidence store and produced the tiny fingernail scrapings taken from the body of one of the three female victims. This was the young Irish-born lawyer, Kira Glennon. In the decade that these scrapings had sat in evidence bottles, DNA science had changed from primitive to cutting edge. A dedicated investigator, Detective Sergeant Jim Stanbury, who was a former head of the task force, Kira Glennon's fingernail scrapings and other important samples to England for specialised DNA testing in 2008. Now, this is some 14 years after the actual murders. It shows how slowly the wheel turns, but it shows that it does turn. Each year that had gone past, DNA technology was getting more sophisticated. They could take smaller samples and match them up in a way in 2008 that they couldn't do in 1998. So Jim Stanbury takes these samples to the scientists at the Forensic Science Service Laboratories in Birmingham in the UK. They discover male DNA traces on the scrapings from Kira Glennon's left thumb and middle finger. Just two tiny things, but it's enough. And when that male profile was entered into the database back home in Perth, they instantly got a hit with DNA found on the 1995 Karakata rape victim. And from that moment, it was only a matter of time. Now they knew that their Karakata rapist from 1995 is their murderer from later in the 90s. And they know that now they've got the DNA samples, there's every chance that they'll be able to triangulate the crimes when they find some more evidence. And that, ultimately, is what happened. Science led the police to link the unknown Claremont killer with an obscure assault back in the 1980s. An unknown male had crept into a house in suburban Perth 
and got into bed with a teenage girl. Now, the girl assumed for a minute or so that it was her boyfriend that had sneaked back into the house. And when this male put his hand over her mouth, she thought it was the boyfriend being funny and said, it's okay, I won't scream. But then she realised when she put her hand around and rubbed it on his face and felt stubble, she realised it wasn't her boyfriend who was totally clean-shaven. That's when she screamed, jumped out of bed, hit the bedroom wall and yelled for her father, who came rushing. And both her parents and the girl saw a man dimly lit in the night light, and he was wearing a white kimono, which he dropped at the scene. And that kimono had traces of DNA on it, which matched up with the Claremont killer. And so now the police had more and more evidence about this deviate who they had not yet been able to name, but they were building towards a revelation. And eventually it happened because they were able to link this unknown rapist and killer with another relatively minor sexual assault for which he was charged. And that is where they got his name. And his name, as we all now know, was Bradley Edwards. He was a Telstra technician. Uh, He, apart from one charge for a fairly minor sexual assault, he had not come to the notice of the police. But it turned out that he was a completely bent unit. He'd sailed under the radar for many years and had gone from being someone who contemplated sexual assaults to actually doing them and then to doing sexual assaults and killing the victims. It was a wonderful result for DNA. Without DNA, Bradley Edwards, triple murderer, would still be free today. And we'll be back after this. A troubled young woman... Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Now for the downside the case for why DNA is not always the answer, why it can never be regarded as the only answer. It must be bolstered, supported, shored up by other evidence that also points to the same guilty party. In Victoria alone, just off the top of my head, I can recall two high-profile debacles in which mistaken application of DNA caused the wrong men to be arrested. And I'm here to suggest that in another case, possibly Australia's most famous cold case, the Easy Street double murder in Collingwood in 1977, it's conceivable that relying on DNA to clear suspects has led police to clear the guilty person. 
I just throw that in as a matter of interest. The problem with DNA is this. It's far more vulnerable to contamination and foul-ups than fingerprints ever were. Fingerprints are not only unique, but they're very hard to transfer artificially or to mix up or to contaminate. Occasionally, and this happened again in Perth, would you believe, corrupt police can work out how to transfer fingerprints from one object to a crime scene exhibit. They can do it. They can take a fingerprint from a coffee cup in Baldwin and they could move it to a bank robbery in Box Hill. It could be done, but it's not easy. And for that reason, fingerprints are relatively fail-safe when it comes to identifying that a particular person has probably, beyond reasonable doubt, been at a particular scene. Not so with DNA, which, by its nature, is much trickier. Any tiny trace of DNA can be transferred by third parties, either accidentally or with the deliberate intention of misleading police to arrest the wrong people, or even, as we've hinted at, even by corrupt police looking for a new way to pull the oldest trick in the book, that is, planting evidence. The good old fit-up. In the bad old days, the armed robbery investigators and major crime investigators would use throwaway guns and they would use sticks of gelignite, explosives, and they would sometimes wrap them as gifts and leave them in a crook's house and then discover them and charge the crook with illegal possession of explosives or firearms. And this was regarded as a legitimate tactic. But of course, as those dinosaurs went out of business, along with bank robberies, some police who wanted to take shortcuts were able to work out that it was easier to do with DNA than with gelignite, and much easier than giving away perfectly good Colt 45s. It's obvious, really. Something as simple as a hair or a discarded soft drink bottle or a paper cup or a cigarette butt can so easily be transferred to a crime scene and there be found. And when I say found, found in inverted commas. And so we get cases like the now infamous case in Western Australia of a man called Scott Ostick. Scott was just an average guy living in a country town in Western Australia. His pregnant girlfriend, who did not live with him, she lived in her own place elsewhere in the same town, she was stabbed to death in a frenzy. And the police turned up from Perth and they decided that the person who would want to kill her would be her boyfriend, the father of her unborn child, and that the supposed motive would be that he had other children by his ex-wife and that he didn't want her to have the baby because he didn't want the responsibility of an extra child, etc., etc., etc. And so it would appear that the finger was pointed at Scott Ostick because of the circumstances rather than because of the facts. And the facts, it would seem, painted a different story because there was nothing actually to link Scott Ostick to the crime scene. 
when the police first got there, it would appear there were no fingerprints of Scott Ostick's that could be proven to have been left there at the time of the murder. Of course, he often visited that apartment or that house because she was his girlfriend. Stacy was his girlfriend. And naturally, he would visit her and naturally his fingerprints would be there. So fingerprints became irrelevant. It's the same to some extent with DNA samples found in her house. But what someone allegedly did, and a judge has accepted this, so there's no legal issue here, what they did, it would appear, is to plant evidence in convenient places. They placed a cigarette packet of a brand that Scott smoked on a table and took a photograph of it. They placed, it would appear, a Jim Beam can with his fingerprints and DNA on it outside a window of Stacy, the girlfriend's house, so that it looked as if he'd been standing around drinking and then watching her and waiting for a chance to kill her. But the clincher was they also planted, this is according to a judge who later reviewed the case, they also planted a knife, like a, a big pocket knife, a knife that that is known probably as a clasp knife, the one that you can pull the blade out. And it was a blade of about 12 or 14 centimetres long, big enough to kill someone with. But interestingly, it did not match the actual stab wounds in the dead woman. But as happens, or as used to happen, the police case was believed by the courts and by a jury. And the case against Scott Ostick back in 2007 or thereabouts was made successfully and he was locked up for a very long time for murdering his pregnant girlfriend, Stacey. It was really only his own family's efforts that kept up pressure on the authorities to have another look. And eventually, and probably because of a very powerful piece of television made by a Channel 7 reporter, Scott Ostick's case was reviewed and overturned and he was freed after serving 13 years inside for a murder that a judge has accepted he did not commit. It would seem that it's likely that another person, a person motivated by jealousy, probably had the motive and the means to do the murder. But we won't go there. Okay, we'll switch back from Western Australia back to Victoria. A case that I'm familiar with and fascinated by, and that is the Tap double murder in Ferntree Gully in 1984 during the Los Angeles Olympics. Margaret Tap, a 30-something nurse and law student, as it turns out, and her little daughter, I think she was nine, her daughter's name was Shauna. Margaret and Shauna were found murdered in August 1984 in their home in Ferntree Gully. Basically, they'd both been strangled, but the key point is that semen was found on Shauna's nightdress. Shauna, the little girl, there were signs that she'd been sexually assaulted and therefore 
this double murder was really committed by someone who was a sexual deviant as opposed to an opportunistic burglar or a burglary gone wrong or revenge or something like that. It, it clearly was a sexually motivated crime. The problem that the police had with it, apart from the fact that they were very busy with some other murders at that time and probably overworked and overstretched, their problem was that Margaret Tapp was a nurse. She was a divorcee. She was a nurse who worked at a local hospital and there she was very popular with the local doctors that she worked with, six or seven of them uh, she'd had affairs with. She was having an affair with the doctor who owned the house and she was friendly with a lot of other people, including people she met at university where she was studying part-time at Monash and, you know, a driving instructor where she was learning to drive a truck and so on and so forth. And the police's problem was, as we've said before in these podcasts, with Margaret Tapp, it wasn't that they had no suspects, they had too many. And so the Tapp case sat in the cold case files for year after year after year, for several decades, until 2008. Now, this is, what, 24 years after the crime? And in 2008, the then members of the Homicide Squad were quite jubilant because suddenly, out of the blue, they'd had a DNA hit. They leaked the story to a colleague of ours here at this paper and said, we've got a hit in the lab. Uh, it turns out that there's a bloke in jail up at Fulham Prison at Sale and... Certainly this man, uh, Russell Gisa is his name, G-E-S-A-H. I think he might have been an islander. He might have been from maybe up in Queensland or something. And he'd been locked up in Victoria for, for some crime. And when the police went up to see him and said, we've got a hit in the lab that shows that um, your DNA was found at the Tap House in 1984... What have you got to say about that? He refused to speak to them. He refused to tell them anything. And had he spoken to them, he probably would have been able to give them a foolproof alibi, a, an absolute watertight alibi. But he would not speak to them, which confirmed the police's bias against him. They thought, well, if he won't talk, he must be guilty, which I have to say would be a very tempting conclusion to draw. You would imagine that if you had a DNA sample from the lab that indicated it was him, and then when you talk to him, he won't be interviewed and gives a no-comment interview that you've got your man. But sadly, once they really went into it, it turned out that uh, when the accused man spoke to his own lawyers and others, that he did have a watertight alibi and I'm not sure what that alibi is, but probably it was easy to prove that in 1984, Russell Geeser was a very young man and that he was a long, long way from Victoria, let alone from Ferntree Gully. And so that case fell flat on its face. And that proves that what had happened was that in the laboratory at the police forensic laboratory out at McLeod, I think... There'd been cross-contamination, that a little bit of DNA from one case 
it had been moved and had fallen into the wrong Petri dish or had fallen onto the wrong microscope slide or whatever. We know that tiny amounts of DNA count and the problem with that is that when a tidy amount is splashed in the lab or moved by somebody's gloves or on their sleeve, that it can cross-contaminate and cause the wrong conclusions to be drawn, which can mean that the wrong people are arrested and charged, which can mean that the wrong people could actually be convicted because of a simple and small error in the laboratory, such as the interesting case of a young 19-year-old Somalian refugee called Farah Jamar. And Farah Jamar was charged with raping a 48-year-old woman at a Doncaster nightclub. Now, the curious circumstance of this were that Farah Jamar was from Footscray. He ran around with other guys that he mixed with, mostly African kids and other kids that lived around Footscray. He very rarely went any further east than, say, Sydney Road or Collingwood or something like that. His patch of Melbourne was between Footscray and the city. And that was that. Why he, as a 19-year-old African guy from the other side of town, would end up in a Doncaster nightclub on an over-28s night, no one could explain. But, again, what happened was a mix-up in the lab. In this case, the 48-year-old alleged victim, she may not have been a victim, was found unconscious in a toilet cubicle at this Doncaster nightclub with her pants down and no memory of what had or had not happened. A swab was sent to the same laboratory that had screwed up the Russell Geeser tap case and this time it resulted in a nightmare miscarriage of justice. As a sample of Farah Jamar's DNA was being legitimately examined at the lab because he'd been mixed up in some nasty business in Brunswick. They were looking at a sample of his DNA in the lab. While they were looking at it, the sample comes in from the Doncaster nightclub and somehow there was cross-contamination and the scientists come out waving a bit of paper saying, oh, guess what? The guy that did your uh, Doncaster nightclub rape or ledge rape, it's this young bloke, this 19-year-old. What's his name? Uh, Farah Jamar. Um, he's from Footscray. Don't know who he is, but there you go. Science had it. Now, the police acted on that without actually thinking or looking at the circumstances or showing any scepticism. They just said, right, the lab said that he did it, so he done it. Um, it was never logical from the start. He's 19, he's from the wrong side of town, he'd never been to Doncaster in, in his life, he'd never heard of the nightclub or the pub or whatever it was, and in any case, he would show up like uh, a tarantula on a wedding cake if he turned up at that nightclub. There were security cameras all over the place. He did not show up on the security cameras. His mobile phone, if he had one, did not indicate that he'd been to Doncaster, and none of that prevented him being prosecuted with the full weight of the law and being convicted and, I think, being jailed. And it was only after many months of behind-the-scenes work that common sense prevailed 
and that his conviction was overturned and he was freed. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. That, I find, a most persuasive story to tell us and to warn us that DNA is not always the answer. It's a great tool. There's a saying in the country that fire is a great servant and a very bad master. And it's a saying we pull out every summer when there's bushfires. But I think in the police laboratory, we should remember that DNA is a great servant and a very bad master. Thanks for listening. Please comment or rate it on whatever platform you're using. And if you haven't done it already, please subscribe. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime.